officially 24 subscribers right now. That's actually not bad. Yeah. Yeah, today I've got a couple things I want to talk about. I mean, I did say in the last podcast that I would revisit the opportunity for making money on the short side in Canada once there is a confirmation. So the confirmation came in today. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. And in the second part, I'd like to just uh, talk a little bit more about the the ramifications of that uh, oil crash the other day, just quickly at the end. So this will be a, a relatively short podcast unless there's uh, some specific Q&A that comes after. The most important thing on my radar today, there, there might be some people thinking about it, but there's no big activity happening as of today. The market I'm referring to is the uh, S&P TSX Composite Index. It's out of Canada, Toronto Stock Exchange, and basically it's uh, our version of the uh, S&P 500. Much smaller, less diversified, but nonetheless, um, it is a developing, it, it's in the developed world. It's showing right now just about, you know, to have a precipitous fall. Overall, it looks like sometime in the May to June period is when some extreme volatility is likely to really escalate uh, in this specific market um, in particularly. Later in the call, I'm going to be getting into some detail about the oil ramifications on Saudi Arabia and the OPEC nations and what impact that's going to have in their currency and geopolitically. But for right now, there's a lot of activity in the oil patch in, in Canada. So definitely bankruptcies and the collateral effect of those bankruptcies in the Alberta area and other provinces, which you know may generate activity due to that. Uh, space will definitely be uh, all over the news, uh, let's put it this way, as we advance through the the uh, mid-June period. And it's not like it's going to end then, but I believe there's going to be a big wave in that period. So it's worth paying attention to. So let's start off. The other day I was uh, talking about the TSX on the long-term chart, indicating a, a multi-year crash in the in the 2020s. Any periodic rallies that happen are basically setups for another rolling crash as the economy descends into a depression. So it may start off as a severe recession, but I don't believe that's how it's going to end up. In terms of specific actionable um, levels that traders should be focusing on so that they could actually profit from this negativity in the market, these are the levels I'm looking at. So on the TSX right now, I was looking at an 80-minute chart in confluence with a chart where each bar on the chart represents seven days. Most traders will look at a one-day chart, like each bar is one day, and then they'll look out a, a few years. I'm basically looking at a chart that goes back to the very first trade that ever started in the TSX and trying to see what the dominant trend is going to be. And this dominant trend coming up is going to be a reversal of the entire move up on the TSX that from the very beginning of its existence. So this is of the highest scale. Now, just looking at a daily chart isn't good enough for a tactical strategy to trade because, uh, you know, when each bar represents seven days, the true range of a given bar is massive. And the volatility that a trader would be subject to if you only honed in on one time scale would be tremendous. So it's important, as many traders know, to combine more than one time frame in your analysis. The type of analytics that I look at really looks at all time horizons, right from the tick level all the way up to the multi-generational time frame. But for purposes of tactical entry, it is important to go lower than a daily chart so that you could position yourself with a, a much tighter level of, uh, of risk containment. And also, just to give you confirmation that what you're seeing in the longer term is actually in confluence uh, with what is happening in the shorter term. And it just happens to be that today, the 80-minute chart, which is the short term, has basically is now in confluence with the long-term horizon where each bar represents seven days, which expands out over a decade in terms of how I'm able to see how the sentiment bias of momentum is gonna be unfolding for traders 
as uh, this, this market meltdown uh, initiates. So today, the TSX uh, index closed at approximately 14,251.09. Some people's machines, it may vary depending on how they get their data. It shouldn't. There should be an official number, but that's pretty much what it is. Uh, we did make a high back at around uh, noon on the, uh, on the 20th, a local high of about 14,509. Now, it basically today, it confirmed that the levels above us, the resistance levels above us, which currently sit at 14,536 to 14,548, those are the immediate short-term average resistance bands. Now markets, usually before a sell-off, usually have its biggest last up move sometimes. So if there is a spike to the upside, on any kind of positive news before there is a major key reversal to the downside. Normal volatility would be 14,714, 14,814, and 14,993. So traders that are looking to fade the market, if for whatever reason in the pre-market there was some kind of gap into those levels, I would be looking at using a trading vehicle to actually profit from shorting the market into that period. Now, because a lot of investors are not necessarily familiar with short selling, I'd like to just talk about an actionable trading idea um, in terms of the best way to express a short trade without having to go short. So there are exchange traded fund vehicles operating in Canada. They trade both on the TSX and on the NEO. Uh, the TSX has more volume and there's also a larger trading history. So I would be trading the ETF on the TSX. And the ETF I'm honing in on today is the HIX, which is the S&P TSX 60 Horizon Beta Pro. And it's basically an inverse ETF. So if in a given week, let's say, not necessarily intraday, because the way these exchange-traded uh, funds work, when there's an inverse, they may not 100% correlate. For every point drop in the index, it's not necessarily going to make a move of 1% higher. It may take a few days for it to stabilize and actually produce a very clear correlation that's inverse to the index. But in general, the goal of the index is to be uh, correlated one-to-one. -one. And there are other products out there, as many um, American investors are familiar with in the United States with the S&P, there are leveraged products that traders who want to get aggressive on the short side will actually buy ETFs that are two or three times leveraged. Those are really only meant to hedge yourself on a daily basis because the tracking error is, is quite high with those if you hold it for an extended period of time. And they they could actually produce results that are negative, even if you're right on the direction of the call. So I really today want to just focus on the HIX, which is basically the inverse of the TSX 60. And by doing that, you're not you're going to have a better tracking error. Uh, it'll be a, it'll be less of a tracking error, and it's going to correlate more directly one for one. So one point up on the TSX in percentage will result in uh, one point down in this. And if we believe, as we do, that the TSX is going to fall significantly, then proportionally the HIX should rally. So today, just going to put up the chart of the HIX. Uh, today it closed $5.87. Uh, just for Americans, just to uh, for clarity, sometimes people make an error when they type in a symbol because there is a symbol in the United States also that's the HIX. And uh, that's a different stock. <laughs> so we wanna make sure that you're, you're focusing in on the HIX that's trading on the TSX. And the, and the interesting thing is both of these stocks, the one that trades in the States, they're both in the $5 range. So it may seem as if you have it right, but it isn't because I believe the one in the States trades at about $5 in, 41 cents and this is 587 but they're completely 
and have nothing to do with each other. So, so if I'm is, if I'm located in the United States, how do I uh, take advantage of this? Because I, if I look up, if I look it up uh, with the symbol, it comes up with that other company that you're talking about. Uh, it depends what platform you're using. Uh, there's usually like, for example, uh, Interactive Brokers, which is a very sophisticated platform in the US for, you know, you could trade all kinds of stocks in any different kind of country. And, and when you type in the symbol, it automatically pops up with different choices for different areas in the world that may have the same symbol. And then you basically select it. If your specific broker does not have it on the platform or it's not obvious, then I would just basically either look it up in you know see if there's an alternate trading platform that they offer that that allows you to actually enter symbols from uh, countries that are outside the united states because most uh, systems today should allow you to do that uh, but the thing is it's optimal to really you know to have a uh, a u.s dollar account and a canadian dollar account if you're an american and you only have an american dollar account you still can put on a Canadian dollar trade in an American account, but some places may only allow you to do that if you have two accounts. So if you accidentally buy a Canadian stock in the American account, it will convert your currency. So there's gonna be a currency exchange. And then basically, if you make that mistake and not put the Canadian stock on the Canadian side of the portfolio, then you'd have to call your broker and do a ledger transfer uh, and put it on the Canadian side. So for people that want to participate in this optimally, and if there are, and I do believe going forward, it would be worthy to have a, an account where you could both trade Canadian and US. So you may want to talk to your broker and, and set up a trading vehicle for Canada. And the reason why I say that is because this, these opportunities in Canada, normally I would say, hey, there's not much to do in Canada. Like whatever you could do in Canada, you could find a stock in the States. But it just happens to be that, you know, no matter what kind of volatility the States is, may see in the future, you could multiply that dramatically in Canada. <laughs> so it would make sense as a trader if you're looking to get the maximum advantage by uh, taking advantage of an inverse ETF it would be nice to do that with a product in Canada. And the HIX is a convenient way to do it without you know, having to leverage yourself or take extra risk beyond just going betting against the market. The other reason why I'd say it would make sense having a Canadian account is because in our previous uh, episodes, uh, we were talking a lot about opportunities in the gold, and silver space and Canada is quite known to have quite you know high potential gold and silver mines and there are a few on my list that are upcoming that I will be talking about in the future and uh, some of those stocks they do trade in the United States but they trade very thinly in the United States with very little volume and low liquidity you always want to be trading the stock uh, in the country that it's located in because that's usually where the highest liquidity is and where the greatest um, history of the stock is located. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the answer to that question. Um, I hope that was, that was helpful. You may have to just dig a little deeper into your platform and see if there's a way to do that without a Canadian account, because that could take a little bit of time. So just right. basically call, you know, call your broker, find out, hey, if there is a way to enter that symbol, it may not, you may not be able to enter it on the computer, but you may be able to call the order in. I know sometimes when you call an order in, they charge you more, but they shouldn't. You should let them know, hey, if it's not available on your system and there's other companies that offer it, then they should be competitive and match it or else, you know, you may be going somewhere else. So I think once you tell them that, they're going to probably want to not charge you for putting the trade in. So that, that's kind of what I would do. And that seemed to work for me in the past uh, when I had issues. So, so it closed at 587. Now, in terms of levels, let's take a look here. Just a few days ago, back on March the 19th, it made a high is up at about 763. 
that was that coincided with that big sell-off in the TSX. One interesting thing about um, inverse ETFs that you have to understand is that they almost behave, sometimes they could behave like an option <laughs> at two, a, a, in a good way, not in, not in the bad way. Like, because options are, you know, pretty much, you know, if you go long an option, you, you're pretty much set to lose your money unless you're putting together a spread and you're, you're selling it to somebody else where the odds are in your direction. When I say it acts a little bit like an option is that most people don't focus on inverse ETFs. It's pretty rare. Most people like going along the market. And, you know, it's pretty rare when you get some kind of market crash. They're not, and they're also very volatile market crashes, right? That's the definition. Like price moves very quickly. So because any ETF that's inverse is usually relatively low liquidity relative to ETFs that are not inverse, when you start getting buying interests coming in from traders that want to participate in a market crash by going long the inverse ETF, it doesn't take much buying to cause a massive spike above what fair value should be. It, it's supposed to match the, uh, the, um, the TSX one for one uh, as, the, uh, as the price goes down on the TSX, but sometimes it could be dramatically higher in your favor, especially if you get in early before you know, the stampede of uh, buyers start coming in. That's why I really wanna talk about it today because the market is, it's, you know, you still have an opportunity. Hopefully it doesn't gap up too much tomorrow, but uh, during the day, actually a trigger during the day, but our, uh, our podcasts happen at the end of the day. Eventually we're going to have podcasts uh, interday, but uh, right now I think for the, for the move I'm expecting on the upside, uh, whatever move happens tomorrow, if it is a little bit higher than 587, I believe there's still a long, long way for this to go we should easily blow out that 763 handle area and uh, easily move towards uh, uh, $10.42. And, and, and maybe at that point there is a retracement. And that, but I think, you know, as we advance, you know, 1342 is certainly in strike. And I'm not saying that that's the highest point it's only going to go to. I just, I just think as a trader, we should, you know, traders usually focus on what is the next level that makes sense. On the HIX, just like when I was talking about the TSX, the long-term time frame that I was focusing on for the TSX came from the seven-day bar chart where each bar was seven days and it goes out a very long time. But because the HIX didn't exist and doesn't have the same amount of history as the index itself because inverse ETFs didn't come into the market until after, quite a few years after the TSX started, the long-term time frame will therefore come from a shorter-term chart. So the long-term for the HIX what, that I'm looking at, so if traders are going to try to you know, use whatever trading systems they have for analyzing it, should really be going to a bar chart where every bar represents three days. Now, for the short-term, you want to have a short-term buy signal on the HIX that's in confluence with the longer term buy signal. It just happens to be that for the HIX, the time frame that will keep you out of market noise will be the 20 minute chart. So yes, that's less than the 80 minute chart that we were using for the TSX, but it makes sense because it's proportionally smaller because it hasn't been in existence for as long. But by combining that 20 minute chart and overlaying it with information from the three day chart, it will allow you to um, identify the optimal time frame uh, to trade the opportunity on the long side on the TSX uh, Beta Pro inverse ETF. So what I'm seeing based on the 20-minute chart, uh, it's telling me that it, it confirmed today levels. Uh, 546 is an area of where I would also be buying. So if it did come down, Right now it's a 587. So if it pulled back to 546, I'd be very happy and I'd like to buy some more. I don't believe we'll have to wait very long, uh, no matter what kind of up spike you get in the, S, in the TSX. Like if there's some kind of last push up it decides to do before the, you know, uh, the beginning of May, I don't believe it would be, it, it would last 
much longer in terms of time because I really do believe that um, as we advance past the first week of May into the middle of June, we should see some incredible volatility and downside action in the TSX, which means huge upside action potential in the uh, HIX. And 20 minute chart for the HIX, it shows the next uh, level on the upside is 648. And then after that, uh, 1042. So that's significant move from the $5 area. That's a 100% rally that I would expect in this index for this uh, market crash. And as we advance into the middle of June, I will, ha- you know, I will have a series of podcasts that will update this information. So let's say that one thing about trading strategies and that I don't like about some strategies, somebody will give you a, a number. Oh, there's 100% upside, 1042. And then the price gets close. And then the market comes crashing back down lower than where you bought in. And then the person told you, oh, guess what? Did you make money on the trade? And then basically the trader says, no, I actually lost money because you said it was going to 1042 and it only went to 1028. And I don't know what close enough is. And sometimes traders will say, oh, it was close enough. Well, that just doesn't cut it. Like you, you have to have actionable ways of knowing if something is happening in the short term in the market that says that the longer term potential is not going to be achieved on this run, maybe the market has to build more energy to pull back before it has the potential to get to 1042 and then the 1342. So we're going to be on it. And as it advances up, we will let you know whether it's $9 or whether it's $10 or whether it says, hey, don't get out of 1042. It looks like there's a new signal that formed on maybe a 20-minute chart that said, hey, we're likely going to go to 15 bucks, and it's not even June 15th. If it says that, we'll, we'll let you know. But if it doesn't say that, regardless of whether we're deep in profit or a little bit in profit, we're going to let you know what you need to do in order to um, protect the capital as the trade progresses. Because it's one thing about having an extremely high mathematical edge getting into the trade, but none of that matters if market conditions evolve and the mathematical edge isn't quite as high as it advances. So we will let you know if that edge deteriorates. I could tell you from my work that on these kind of signals, they don't deteriorate. I'd say about 95% of the time, they will not deteriorate. And if they do, they marginally deteriorate to a point where we could still you know, scratch profit off of them. So I think it's very important to revisit this trade incrementally as this moves on. So that's basically the trade with the um, HIX. I just want to just just go back to the TSX. I gave some levels earlier that were logical levels and then spike levels. But there, there are other people that may, you know, disagree with me and say, hey, you know what? I think that the market could retrace maybe even higher given how fast and far it came down in March. And what if some good news comes out uh, regarding uh, the shelter in place and you know everything's working out and we're gonna go back and everything's gonna be fine. So is it possible that we could have a bigger retracement? There are some people that could argue and say, hey, you know what, even in a bear market, a normal retracement could be as high as, as 15,950 or 16,015 on the TSX, or even 16,843, uh, which would fill the gap of February 27th on the TSX. The 15,950 handle to 16,015 handle would fill the gap of the March 6th to March 9th area. And a lot of traders know that when there's a gap, markets love filling it. But Traders also know that if the market is so darn weak, it could be a runaway gap that's the beginning of a breakaway move that could go on a lot further before the market's ready to really have a forceful rally that has uh, legs. So I'm throwing those numbers out just so you're aware of what other traders might be looking at. I do see that. And if, and, you know, and if, if I didn't get any kind of confirmation in here, and if, I, if we weren't so close to the key date of being the first, pushing into the first week of May 
as an area of uh, where volatility could expand again, then maybe I would be open to the idea that it could go way further up, way longer. I just don't see that. Uh, I just see, th- but I'll tell you one thing. I'll be the first to let you know that as if, it, if this trade advances and, and comes into some profit and says, hey, you know what? It looks like we're going to take one more run. I'll let you guys know. I just, I just don't see another run outside of possibly a spike high that goes higher and maybe you know a, a little lower on the HIX before it really explodes to the upside. But either way, I, I see the intermediate term and, and the short term uh, as we advance through uh, you know, the next month and a half and then this decade being just a disaster for the TSX. So I don't think 1342 is going to be the high in the HIX for this decade. But I think for purposes of trading and just taking one thing at a time, knowing how many things could change, especially given that this summer the economy may reopen, we don't know yet. I'd say just, you know what, it makes sense. One more retest of the low, probably very successfully retesting that in in Canada. In the States, because we've got a lot of technology stocks that are very, very strong and in intermediate to long-term uptrends, such stocks like you know, uh, Netflix and, and stocks like that and, and a number of drug companies like uh, Regeneron. And, and actually, one of the names we talked about the other day had a nice pop today, and that was uh, Red Hill. Yeah, so Red Hill Phar- Biopharma basically uh, had some news today, actually, uh, or the other day just regarding um, there's some advancements in what they're doing and they're connecting with some, some partners in terms of you know, finding viable uh, alternatives to some of the uh, treatments that exist today. I believe this one could be very, very interesting, but time will tell. It, it still looks like it's gonna be moving into the 10 to uh, $18 area uh, in the intermediate term. And we already pushed up. We're almost up a buck in the after hours from where we were uh, just the previous day. So that's quite interesting considering it's only a it was under uh, $7. That's basically all I wanted to talk about with regard to uh, Canada. I'd like to just uh, mention one more point that I left out. Okay. Uh, there is an additional detail that I could provide on this trade. I would focus very heavily on the April 24th at 12.10 in the afternoon. I know it sounds crazy that we could be that precise, but it's kind of like financial, it's like dominoes but kind of think of it like financial dominoes. If you line up a set of dominoes in a precise order and you tap it, you could pretty much predict according to the physics of how it moves, when all the dominoes are going to be pushing down and when the momentum is going to start moving. In the financial markets, 99.9% of the time, the market is not organized in a certain structure that allows for a contagion effect and kind of a viral propagation of sell orders to kind of push through the market. So, but that 0.5% of the time when that structure's in place, it, al- it allows this specific methodology that I'm using based on quantum physics that allows me to actually see when there's, when there's a potential for a contagion. So April 24th, it's a potential date. It does not mean it's happening at 1210, but I could tell you one thing. If any kind of negative news was to enter the market at any point after April 24th at 12.10 in the afternoon, Eastern time, and at the same time, if price was to trade below 14,130, that would spell some serious trouble. Any kind of rallies would be very, very short-lived and would lead to destructive selling behavior in, in the TSX, which would correspond to um, a a proportional rally in the HIX. So that's one thing to look at. Another date that's even even possibly more important because it gets closer to that May period where it looks like a lot of markets may actually get roiled um, is April 29th at 2.50 in the evening, in the afternoon. And And that's important because the market closes at 4 p.m. And usually the last hour of the trading day is that, you know, especially if you get a sell-off in the last hour of a trading day, it sets the tone for the after hours. And then any kind of news that comes in, people tend to focus on the negatives than the positives. So you could have an inherent bias 
in the psychology of how people are trading uh, going into um, the following trading day. So um, I, I would focus on that day. So any kind of spike high that happens on the 29th or immediately after, you should look at that as a fade, a very strong negative sign. That's something that you do not want to be a buyer. You want to be selling into the buying uh, interest. Now, if the market is exceptionally weak and just doesn't decide to, you know, to uh, go, do one last spike into that time, then possibly the market will just break down at 14,130. And, uh, and especially after the 24th, if we're below that level, then uh, that, that spells trouble, as, especially as we pass through the 29th and advance into the May and the middle of June. After that, uh, things could stabilize, uh, and, then it, and then we'll look for opportunities in the strongest stocks, and that would be in technology, biotechnology, so, and, and gold as well. But gold could actually be, uh, we'll see how gold does during this uh, period, because if things get really, really dicey, remember what happened the last time, gold stocks tanked. Not because uh, gold wasn't good, because gold usually does well in times of volatility, but and in times of uncertainty, uh, which we have extreme amounts of it, given you know the news the other day about what happened in the commodity market. So I would focus on like the you know if gold gets above like the uh, the seventeen uh, you know eighty handle uh, on a closing basis. That, that could really uh, spell the next move up for gold. As far as I'm concerned, gold's already going to do that. It's not a question of if it's going to do that. Like we're right now, we're kind of in a trading range from around 1700 to uh, 1740. But everything changes. Like, uh, you know, you're going to notice a lot more buying action when you're, you know, in, in the high 1700s. And that's where you could start just going explosive. But the reason why I'm bringing the gold up because it's gonna tie into what I have to say about crude oil. Because after I explain to you what I'm seeing in crude oil and what it means for the world, then you're gonna have a pretty good idea of where gold is heading in the intermediate to long-term. And whatever's happening right now is just basically nothing. <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. So with respect to uh, oil, the other day in our podcast, we were talking about how the May contract in oil dipped below $39, minus $39. Now, that's a contract in the futures market that expired. And when a contract expires, uh, there's delivery. That's how the futures uh, work. I, I, you know, they, there's outstanding contracts, and then they have to deliver the goods. Well, you know what? There was no space, okay, containment left to deliver the goods, like, the, the actual pipelines were filled to capacity. Most, most everything that stores oil in the ground on land was filled to capacity. And then all of the floating storage that's in the tankers, it's being utilized and, and the, the, the storage rates are just going astronomically high. So the benefit, as I mentioned in the last podcast, were the, are the tankers. So, you know, uh, basically Nordic American tankers, uh, was one that I, I talked about. And it, it had actually an interesting, uh, you know, spike today. It actually spiked as high as 588 today. When we were first talking about it, uh, way back, it was, it was down in the, in the fours. So it's, it's had a, uh, a pretty good run, but it's just the beginning. The thing is, just to understand the magnitude of the situation, you can't just shut off. There's a multi-step process in terms of like shutting off the spigots. And you, even if you shut them off, there's still a, an enormous amount of oil that's in the pipelines. So it, that still needs to be put somewhere. So, and with contracts next, you know, expiring in June, you know, we're going to have to see, you know, how that plays out, whether, whether we have another episode like that. But as long as this, this virus is, is with us until there's a vaccine, uh, you're going to have a lot of demand uh, destruction and you're in and, but you're getting it at the same time where you're getting an overwhelming amount of supply now part of the big problem why we had such a big fall in the may contract was because even though opec 
is 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 going to you know agree to reduce or hopefully agree to reduce about 9.7 million barrels of oil per day as we move into the into the next month during this there was a gap between uh the period that we were in the last period and the contract expiring where they that reduction was not necessarily taking place but it, it but once that reduction starts you would think oh well that should definitely um you know mitigate the situation but you have to understand that with the shelter in place orders and even the, in the areas that may lift those orders it's quite likely they're going to be going back in place again once the spread reignites and on top of that not all jurisdictions are seeing the same activity and hot spots simultaneously so the hot spots are moving to different regions and shelter in place may be extended in certain areas so there's still going to be a global demand reduction and and the global demand reduction right now the best estimates are somewhere near 30 million i bet about 29 million barrels per day so even with the 9.7 million offset you still have a heck of a lot of demand destruction you know relative to uh the amount of supply that's going to be uh, withdrawn and we have to understand like those numbers mean something because if we already don't have the capacity to store that on land you have to understand one thing that that 9.7 million barrels of oil is equivalent to about 420 million gallons of oil and 29 million barrels of of, of destruction per day is equivalent to like over a bi- like a billion and a half gallons of oil to store that oil for example a tanker could store between let's say 500,000 and 800,000 some of maybe the super tankers could take 2 million so we're talking about needing capacity for several of these new tankers and 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 there's only there's a lot that you know we're not being utilized but it's going to come to a point at some point if they don't really start the opec countries really start reducing their their production dramatically to to offset the demand that we we could have a serious problem and we already have a serious problem and 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 the ramifications of this go beyond just what it means to have oil below zero but It, it, the ramifications is that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and any kind of uh, country petro country that makes their 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 money on oil well if they're not getting the the receipts and making the revenue on oil which is their major source of uh, income then basically there's going to be massive budget deficits and already for example in saudi arabia the budget deficit is 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 already at a, at a 100 year high which is about close to 16% of all gross domestic product that's massive and we're not even necessarily at the worst you know at stage of this uh situation so what does that mean it means complete destabilization in the middle east countries it means complete uh it also means that a lot of the expatriates and professionals that that left other countries where they weren't able to get the kind of wages they wanted and then they went to work in these petro states and petro countries where they were helping to extract oil or did anything in the oil services uh, business they're now going to have to go back home and they're not going to be very happy when they're going back to lower wages and also other countries that are having economic problems on their own so this this poses a massive geopolitical risk because besides the fact that you you'll likely have depression in Saudi Arabia and other areas like that just looking at their chart i was just looking earlier at the index for uh, Saudi Arabia and for example so it's the KSA i shares uh it's uh and that stands for the it's a trust for the um MSCI Saudi Arabia ETF and it's been you know it's made a high back in May 3 2019 then kind of like tanked into um October just did a very minor rally into January and just totally cr- 
crash from $32 down to around $20 in the uh, middle of March. Right now, we're, we're coming down again. We may retest a local, you know, the local high or a little higher. It's possible. We'll see if we retest the, uh, the April high. But the point is, this is just the beginning of a much, much lower price level, you know, for the uh, Saudi Arabian equity markets. But you know what? The equity markets are tiny. What really destroys a country is when nobody has trust in their currency. Right now, it's at 376, okay, on, on the daily chart. But you have to understand one thing. The, the relationship between these currencies are, are very, very, like, they stay in a very, very stable range. The, the, the sigma event, the multi-sigma event, the number of standard deviations away from the mean for all this index trades is, is literally off the charts, uh, you know, since the beginning of, uh, of March. And I believe that this is just the beginning of a, uh, you know, of a real destruction in their currency. So anything that they do to try to improve their situation from like a monetary point of view will definitely likely destabilize. It's going to destabilize them in a big way. Maybe destabilize their purchasing power for sure. And I also think that given that the world knows that's their only source of uh, income, even though they're trying to diversify, uh, it's not going to work. You know, trying to diversify in a world that's in chaos is not a time where you're going to get investors to put capital inflows into your market. So you're going to see a lot of outflows from uh, those type of countries. And where do you think the money's going to go? It's going to go into gold, preservation of hard assets. It's going to go into technology, where there's an actual capital spending cycle, where there's a future, uh, which means that it's going to go into US technology companies. So if there is a correction, I would use it to buy. And I do think there will be a correction, even though it, it won't be like the crash that I'm talking about in Canada. You could have a correction and a retest of, of the lows, but the technology stocks are, are, are a, great place to, a great place to hide. And, and biotechnology, which is the future, because there's so many people that were already unhealthy with uh, you know, medical needs and, and a healthcare system that needs to be revamped in terms of technology and technology, not just in terms of medical supplies, medical equipments, and, and better um, treatments and, and cures of, of certain diseases, but also in terms of revamping the privacy records and the healthcare records so that doctors in different areas are, are immediately aware of patients' uh, situations. One company in that space that I like in the, in the cloud space on pullbacks is uh, Viva Systems which is in the cloud space for providing uh, health record management services. So basically that was one of my concerns. One of my concerns is destabilization of currencies uh, in Saudi Arabia and also a geopolitical risk. But there's another issue to focus on and that's the environmental risk uh, because think about it. If we have all this oil that has nowhere to be stored and if our tanker capacity goes beyond the level of what the output is, if that was to happen, you could have an environmental crisis on your hands because that oil has to go somewhere. It'll just burst through the, through the pipeline and you could have a lot of devastation. Now, let's assume that they do have sufficient storage capacity, even you know, with the floating tankers and they, they build more capacity. Okay, even if they were to do that, you still have all these floating vehicles out in the, in the Middle East and in different parts of the world, and they could be under attack geopolitically. Like there could be somebody that's trying to, you know, hold a, uh, some uh, cargo ship hostage in order to get some kind, you know, because things are pretty dire in their neighborhood. So they may actually try to use that as a vehicle for trying to get something from a developed world party. And we all know that if both sides play hardball, uh, things may not end up well. So, so what I'm saying is there's another example of why somebody should hold gold. Gold goes up in times of volatility, goes up during geopolitical risk, goes up during anything where there's some kind of destabilization mechanism. And, and above all, it goes up when uh, there's uh, either manipulation 
or a downright money printing in order to save fiat currencies around the world. And it's not just the states that's uh, printing money and monetizing their debt, but it's pretty much a global phenomenon. And it's a race to the bottom for currencies. And yes, even though the US is the dominant currency for fiat in the world, and likely will remain that way, it still doesn't mean that it's going to be worth anything in terms of purchasing power if uh, situations like this continue to emerge and we keep on printing money at, at, in an infinite way, like QE infinity. So I bring that up because I do think eventually, I would not be surprised that you know, gold goes above 15, 20,000, maybe even a million. I say a million and don't, I wouldn't laugh about that. It doesn't matter as a trader. As a trader, I'm just looking at levels and I'm just looking at, you know, 2,500, 3,000. And, and I don't even care. I mean, if, if during the day there's a 300 point move and it says, hey, you know what? It's going to reverse. I'm out. I'll mention it. And then if it's going to go down, you know, um, $400 again or whatever, then I'll just look to get in again. And if eventually after trading those pieces, we end up at that explosive high, then, you know, okay. So then we end up there. But the reason why I think that you could go to such astronomical levels is because this is what happens when once people realize that a currency does not have the power, the purchasing power, and right now it, you know, it's not really a big issue because we're in a deflationary environment. But as soon as that turns inflationary, that immediately changes and you could just see gold explode, which means gold stocks could go up tenfold of what gold goes up. So even a move to like 2,500, you could, uh, you know, or 3,000 for some of the gold stocks, you could see a move of, uh, you know, over 10 times, 20 times in some cases, because they're, but when you're dealing with the senior producers that are already deeply in uh, profit in terms of pulling gold out of the ground, then of course you don't get that kind of rise. You just get maybe, you know, a, a two or three time multiplier. But for some of those smaller, uh, miners that aren't profitable until gold breaks, let's say, a certain level. And then everything above that is just exponential kind of growth in their earnings. Then that's really where some of the big bucks could be made. The last thing I want to talk about, and I wasn't going to, but since I did bring up uh, when gold would really take off, what would it take? So I just want to just let you know, what should you be looking at? If you really want to know when gold is going to just go from being just kind of a trader's kind of market where it does two or 300 or 400 point moves to a situation where you get those, um, you know, those perennial gold bulls that think, oh, gold's going to go to 10,000 or 100,000. What, what does it take to, to get some kind of crazy thousand point day in gold as opposed to just a 50 or 100 point move that we've seen in the past when things kind of short-term get messy. And I would focus on the, the TNX. That's the symbol. It may be different on, on your charts, but uh, this is the uh, Chicago Board of uh, CBOE, okay? Chicago um, Exchange 10-year uh, Treasury note yield, okay? So I'm looking at the note yield and I'm just seeing what would it take for this yield to really start going up? Actually, I'm because there's not as much data on this, there's actually a little bit more data on the 30 year. I'm just gonna to go to the 30 year for a second because that's one that the government loves. And it's basically saying yields right now are, are trading at 1.20. So that's pretty darn low on the 30 year. We were back in October, 2018, we were, as, uh, we were up at 3.46. So we're, we're substantially down actually, but it did make a little bit lower, like in the crack and like on uh, March 4th, we got as low as, uh, as 0.84. So we're back at 1.20. So what would it take for this thing to reverse? How long could we stay in a deflationary spiral uh, downward? Well, you'd be surprised <laughs> right now, like just looking at this. Yeah, you could have rallies, but it doesn't change this long-term trend that really took us down hard. I, I would have to say that sometime in the next couple of years, I would say we should, we should look for, you know, watch out for a situation where the period of deflation could turn into an inflation, but that's just when it could happen, okay? 
Like, I, I don't want to, like, uh, if we get to the point in two years from now and it says that, oh, it's not ready yet, and now it looks like it may be another year, that's pretty small time frames when it comes to, you know, looking at a 30-year kind of bond yield. But it's somewhere, I would say, in the, in the two to five-year time frame where this period of deflation and deleveraging across the world in terms of assets will actually potentially turn into a situation where you'll go from deflation to inflation. And that's really when our purchasing power could start deteriorating in a big way. So maybe at that point, you could start seeing those crazy moves in the price of gold. But, you know, on a relative basis, you know, even a move to 2,500 or 3,000 in an orderly kind of way, it just moves, you know, in increments of 50 or 100 points is still a big deal. Because as I said, uh, the gold stocks move multiples of that. Do I think it's going to move $1,000 in one day? I mean, nothing's impossible, but it, I certainly wouldn't bet on that. And it doesn't even matter because if you're long gold, whether it does it incrementally or does it all in one day, you're going to be making money. And the goal isn't just about making money, but it's about protecting your, and preserving your purchasing power just as an overall way of allocating and diversifying your portfolio. Because some people think that, you know what, why don't I just go all into cash and then I have no risk? Well, that's not true because if you're all in cash, then you're still at risk to losing your purchasing power because the, because the goods that you buy every day could go up. And as I explained in the last call, they could go up for many reasons, but also higher, you know, higher wages, the, the destabilization you know, in the supply chain that requires you know, where there will be less supply available. And we all know that if you have the same amount of demand or increasing demand and less supply, prices go up. So it's not always something that can be fixed with monetary policy. Sometimes it's, it's just nature that could get in the way and, uh, and geopolitical risks. So yeah, that, that pretty much covers what I wanted to talk about today. I was looking back to see if there was something that I could add when you were talking about Canada, but nothing really comes to mind. In the future, if our listeners want to ask a question, if they have something specific they want to ask or say, I can bring it up before we, we start our next conversation on, on the next podcast. That way we can kind of involve the, the listeners into our conversations as well. Okay. That would be great. I, I really like in, in engaging with uh, any ideas listeners may have. Sometimes they may have an idea that I'm not looking at. And if I look at it through the lens that I look at, it could actually add value. Or if they're looking at something that they shouldn't be focusing on, then I, I can let them know that as well. Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes only not intended to be investment advice, seek a duly licensed professional for actual investment advice.